You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. So we are honored today to have a paragon of the Phi community joining us, Karsten Yeska, founder, creator of Early Retirement Now, formerly known as Big Earn. Karsten, on behalf of Jason, myself, and my wife, who wanted me to relay this to you, I just want to start by saying thank you for all the work that you've done on Early Retirement Now. You've given us confidence in our FI calculations, and I'm really excited to speak with you today. So welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, let me just echo what Eric said. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, Karsten. You know, the FIRE movement likes to paint itself as pretty simple. Like we have the JL Collins and the simple path to wealth. We have, you know, the shockingly simple math behind early retirement. We have the 4% rule. But I think one of the things about early retirement now and the work that you're doing is this idea that especially as you get closer to your five number and maybe a transition point where you're moving over into early retirement, that you actually have to apply nuance and complexity. And I, I was personally loath to do that. Um, and especially during right. this accumulation phase when you're just, I mean, you are just grinding it out for, for a long time. What, when you're looking at things like the 4% rule, see fire sim, uh, what are the hazards of following something like that, which is very s simplified versus using a tool like your safe withdrawal rate toolbox, which is a spreadsheet that you have as a resource on your website, which is more complex. It's more nuanced. I I'd like to compare right. and contrast those things and hear you talk about what we're missing. So uh, again, I'm not saying that other people are wrong. Uh, right. so, so for example, I, I think that uh, Mr. Money Mustache should rename this blog post, right? It's a shockingly simple uh, math to reaching retirement. Yes. Right? So that path is indeed simple, right? And it's simple because um, you're trying to convert cash flows into a big pile of assets, mm -hmm. right? And that, um, at least mathematically, is relatively simple because you uh, you contribute to a portfolio and then returns of these risky assets are also pulling in the same direction. So everything is pulling up. And um, it's it's a lot easier to deal with uh, to deal with uh, adversity, right? So, for example, if you uh, if you plan to retire in ten years, right, and you set a certain asset target, uh, say two million dollars, and after two years you have one point eight million dollars, I mean that's a huge success still, right? Yeah. And um, and then you can you can ask yourself, well, uh, could I retire with one point eight million dollars? Uh, do I just save a little bit longer, right? I mean, if you whether you retire at age. Uh, 46 or 44 or 48 or 50 that's all extremely early it's still right. a huge financial success and um so the 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 cutoff between failure and and success is a lot more uh mushy and uh and uh and unclear uh, whereas, I mean, you know, if you run out of money, right, you run, you run out of money, right? I mean, you can't just say that I, I'm going to die five years earlier because right. I ran out of money at age 80. Uh, there, there, something, something has to give in the end, whereas uh, it's a lot easier to be flexible on your accumulation path. So, I mean, yeah, I totally agree that uh, asset accumulation is relatively simple, but then asset decumulation is more complicated and, and the the amazing thing is the reason why the decumulation is more complicated is the exact same reason why the accumulation was simpler right, right. so for example people tell you 
that, you know, if you're saving for retirement, you shouldn't be too worried about a, a near-term bear market, right? Because mm -hmm. the near-term bear market means that, well, eventually the market will recover again, and then you are buying your new uh, your 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 new contributions buy you shares at discounted prices and uh, then the market will recover again and you have this dollar cost averaging which by the way is also a form of sequence of return risk so, so savers right. also face sequence of return risk and they are exactly the flip side uh, of the retiree um, and then uh, then and then the, 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 some of these other anecdotes that people tell in um, in uh, in the fire community, right? That that small changes in your contributions over a long enough time can make huge differences, um, right? So you just save a little bit extra, and then over 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, that amount of money can pile up to some huge amounts. Well, that can also hurt you, right? Because that means if you got your safe withdrawal amount wrong by just there's a relatively tiny amount, right? So uh, there's somebody who retires with a 3.5% uh, safe withdrawal rate and somebody retires with a 4% safe withdrawal rate. Um, so, the, so, the, so the simple crowd would say, well, yeah, that's all the same, right? It's just a 0.5% difference. Yes. But it's actually not, right? No, because huge, from 35000 to 40000 it's more than a 10% difference, right? That's right. But again, these $5,000 per year, uh, can you imagine what kind of astronomical amounts they translate into over 30, 40, 50, 60 years of retirement, right? So, and they can make the difference between um, a happy retirement that uh, where you don't have to worry about running out of money and or running out of money in the end. I think the overwhelming majority of people in the fire community is still years and years, maybe a decade away from early retirement. And uh, obviously, we want to cater to, to these people and uh, give them the impression that everything is simple. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, don't have any illusions. So eventually, uh, the math will become a little bit harder. I mean, and the hazard of following, say, a model like Seafire Sim and basing your retirement on it is that is what? So my main criticism um, with some of the simpler calculators is that uh, they try to represent something as a probability that is not really a probability. Or right. if it's a probability, it's not really the probability that that I would be after. right? They say that, well, with a 4% safe withdrawal rate, well, you are 98% uh, safe and there's only a 2% uh, failure rate. And uh, so I would always point out, well, so when you calculate a probability, right, you look at a at a fraction, right? One is so the the number of events that that satisfy a certain condition versus all of the all of the universe of events that that you would entertain. And uh, so basically, what people do is they look at the the, the probability that the four percent rule ran out of money, and you would look at all the different starting cohorts, right? So sometimes starting in 1926, and I think I forgot what Seafire Sim does. I think they probably also start in 1871, which is uh, which is where I start. And uh, so then calculating probabilities out of that seems a little bit nonsensical because. Uh, you're mixing the the denominator has all sorts of cohorts that are not really relevant, right? I mean, I can't put in the denominator people who retire with a 4% uh, withdrawal rate at the bottom of the bear market uh, during the Great Depression or uh, during 1982 or in 2002 or 2003 uh, because we are 
Okay, now we are in a bear market, actually. So we're recording this on June 14th. Uh, And yesterday, we got the confirmation that we're in a bear market. But it's still still only, quote-unquote, 20% down. Uh, Whereas, you know, most people obviously retire at the peak of a bull market, right? Or at at what was up to then the peak of the bull market. And then, of course... Nobody really knows whether this was actually the the overall peak, right. uh, but you're much more likely if you, just like a lot of people in the FI community, we we endogenously retire, right? By the time we reach a certain amount of money, then retire. Uh, you're much less likely to retire at the bottom of a bear market that way than you are. Uh, retiring at the peak of the bull market like in january 2022 so so when people talk about probabilities a lot of these probabilities are probably pardon the pun uh, are a little bit useless there right so as i always use this analogy right i want to find out what's the probability of getting into a traffic jam when i cross the the bridge over to portland and um, of course there's always a traffic jam during rush hour so if i already know that i go during rush hour I probably have a 100% probability. If I go in the middle of the night, is a 0% probability. So I can't really do this experiment where, you know, I send off 24 people and each each hour of the day at the top of the hour, they go over the bridge. And then I see oh, out of 24 people, hey, only four people are in the traffic jam. So one six probability for sure. Uh, <laughs> only one six probability I'll, I'll be in a traffic jam. But of course, if I already know that I go during rush hour, the conditional probability is actually a little bit higher. And the same is true with the safe withdrawal uh, uh, strategies, right? So for example, if somebody retires uh, when equity valuations are extremely high, uh, when the market has been in a in a very long bull market, uh, don't Jason. use these these kinds of failure versus success probabilities. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that you use that example, um, and uh, it, it's nice to hear it contextualized to the to the current yeah, situation. Um, and it it I kind of want to dig into this toolbox a little bit, if you don't mind, which is your your free resource on your website. And we're definitely going to link to it and and, and promote that um, because my wife and I have been using it. And we actually, Jason and I ran this experiment. We both hired a fee-only fee uh, financial advisor and just kind of put all our financials in front of them. And I basically took a 70-30 stocks to bonds portfolio. Mm-hmm. And he looked at all the numbers, the same numbers that I inputted into the safe withdrawal rate toolbox, the spreadsheet that you created. And he basically, you know, we were feeling deflated after this meeting because he's like, well, look, there's a high likelihood that based on a 3.3% withdrawal rate and the numbers that you've given me here, that you, this will not last your full retirement. I put input it into the safe withdrawal rate toolbox and it actually is suggesting, it, it's using a different methodology, I understand, but it's suggesting an even higher withdrawal rate as the fail-safe withdrawal rate. So, well, and, oh, and Eric, to be clear, you're using very conservative assumptions yes. for growth. You're using actually, I think, the defaults, right? That Karsten has in the tool. absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not pumping the the returns in any way <laughs> because I wanted. I want this to be a conservative position, and it's just interesting to me to hear you maybe discuss how the tool was developed and kind of walk us through because there's there's very few things that me as the end user has to actually input, right? Portfolio right. value. Right. Right. Um, and you're telling me what the withdrawal rate actually has to be, as opposed to some of these other calculators right. the, online, which say, enter your withdrawal rate, which I think is, right. is it's, that's a fundamental difference. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. So uh, again, I, I was 
personally also impressed with the the work from Seafire Sim, uh, but then I I kind of outgrew that uh, that tool very quickly, and I wanted to do some some other things. So the the way how I philosophically thought about this was that uh, again, so the the big distinction between my tool and a lot of other tools is that. Uh, my tool works the other way around, yeah. right? So my tool says that if this is your retirement start date, this would have been your safe withdrawal rate to exactly reach your final target. Whereas other people say, I mean, they kind of throw everything at the wall and then see what sticks and what falls down. And then they then they determine their, their safe withdrawal rates. So I find my, and by the way, the, the two are the same, right? Because I can still determine the failure rate of the 4% rule, right? I mean, sure. I look at, well, how many of my cohorts had actual safe withdrawal rates higher than 4% right. uh, or lower than 4%? Then I can determine uh, what's the failure rate of different uh, percentage calculators. But the nice thing is I don't have to rerun the whole thing again. If So, so okay, tell me the failure rate of the 4% rule or the 3.5% rule or 3.25% rule. So other people then have to rerun everything again with that different uh, percentage rate. I can just look up. Um, yeah, everything that's above or everything that's below a certain percentage rate, I don't have to recalculate everything every single time. Obviously, it also takes into account um, um, supplemental cash flows, right? So you right. can model your social security payments, future cash flows. Imagine somebody says, well, you know, in X number of years, I'm going to sell my $400,000 house and I'm going to move into a $200,000 condo. And then these $200,000 is going to be a fresh uh, cash injection into my portfolio. But the, I mean, the nice thing is, I mean, it's, it's a relatively trivial formula. So instead of taking one fixed rate and see what what fails and what doesn't fail, uh, I'm just going to say, well, these are the these are the safe withdrawal rates, and and they, they they're relatively easy to calculate. It's it's uh, it's all just a bunch of matrix algebra and a little and a, and a few and a few Excel uh, hacks. Yeah. There. Easy for you. I mean, e yeah. easy for you. Yeah. So so Carson, if I can. Uh, kind of extend Eric's question. Why do you think, uh, you know, a, a skilled, uh, you know, properly trained financial advisor would balk at the idea of, you know, someone 48 who may agree, may have 40 to 50 years of runway that this has to last? Why might they balk at the idea of a 3.3 or 3.25% withdrawal rate on a 70-30 portfolio and just say, well, that's just the likelihood of that succeeding, it's not that high. This is way too aggressive. Why um, do they say that? I th yeah, I, th I think they might just resort back to back to heuristics. Um, and I mean, I've I, by the way, I've seen both ways, right? I've seen some people mm -hmm. then become so overly conservative that uh, they they never recommend anybody retire before age 65, which is kind of insane. Yeah. I've also seen the other way around, right, where, where I had some kind of a Twitter battle with uh, somebody who is a member of the FI community and who oh. is a CFP. And, um, and, and basically, I tried to explain to this person, well, you know, you want to be more cautious with the 4% rule, right? I mean, because sometimes you can be more aggressive than 4%, right? So, for example, if you're at the bottom of a bear market, right. you yeah. can be more aggressive. Or say, if you retire at age 50 or 55 and you got corporate pensions around the corner, or you could potentially start Social Security or you delay Social Security, but then 20 years into your retirement, you get this huge cash flow. You, you might you might actually 
your money might have to last only 20 years and then you can just completely live off of social security uh, alternatively. Uh, so I've seen a lot of cases where you should have a higher than 4% uh, safe withdrawal rate, but, but then also I've seen a lot of cases where you should be lower than 4%. And and uh, so basically I, I pointed that out to the guy. And the, so initially he tried to brush me off while well, you're trying to market time. And I said, no, mm -hmm. no, it's, it's not really market timing, right? It's, it's just uh, uh, because par so a lot of the variation in withdrawal rates from person to person comes from just purely idiosyncratic yes. uh, characteristics. You, you can't have the same withdrawal rate for somebody who is 28 uh, versus who is somebody who is 48 or 58. Sure. Yeah. And um, so, so, uh, so he tried to brush me off like that. So I pointed that out, and then, and then basically he said something along the lines, "Well, well, we start with four percent. You know, that's in the books, and." Um, you know, if it works, you just increase your withdrawal rate, and if it doesn't work, then you lower it. And uh, I said, "Wow, I mean, that's that, that's that's kind of lazy. Uh, so you you should you should think about it more carefully." Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so I, I think we're still Twitter friends, but we <laughs> okay. kind of I think I think he muted me. <laughs> oh, you didn't send him some regression analysis uh, <laughs> on uh, Cape ratio or something. Come on, I'm disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Jason here with Two Sides of Fi. If you'd like to help the show, please support our nomination for a Plutus Award for Excellence in Financial Media. To do so, just go to twosidesoffi.com slash P-L-U-T-U-S. The few seconds you spend can have a really big impact. Thanks. Carson, let me ask about a different group of people, and I'll, I'll, I'll put myself out there and know I'm not asking for financial advice, but um, so you're off the hook. But... You know, I have talked to a number of people who err on the other direction. And, and you know, I remember I seem to recall you mentioning maybe this is very early on in your series, the idea of uh, I'm probably going to target more like 35 X uh, savings of my annual spend. And that's what I did. Um, and, and part of me just keeps saying, like, I'm being too conservative. I'm you know, this is this has been my reaction to all of this. I could be you know, I could have more adjustment over time. I could use the concept of, you know, valuation and changing with CAPE right. ratio to change. But in full candor, I'm withdrawing at about 2.7% of my original portfolio starting point two years ago for being conservative and honestly just for ease of, you know, spending. Like, you know, right. my wife and I like the idea of not having to think too hard about what our spend is going to be like, knowing that it is a relatively low withdrawal rate and if bumps could happen, um, they're not going to upset us too much. Is that a silly idea? Is it overly conservative? How would you guide somebody who is fixed and on the lower end right. to consider other other options? I mean, I guess I guess the uh, so there are two ways to answer that. One is, um, yeah, you could say, well, why withdraw more than you need? Right. I mean, so you might as well just let the money grow and um, keep it as uh, as a legacy. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe they're gonna name name a building or football stadium after me <laughs> or something like that. I mean, maybe a park bench uh, yeah. or, or or a building at a university. So I'll, I'll I'll see how it works out. So even when you do all this analysis about probabilities of failure versus success, you do all of this completely correct, right? So you take into account asset valuations and you already chop your sample into. Well, I only look at equally overvalued stock market mm -hmm. uh, and I say well even even with my uh, even with my withdrawal rate I still don't run out of money maybe I want to do an additional 
um, safety cushion to that safe withdrawal rate. Because, for example, historically, there have been cohorts that uh, actually survived a 30-year retirement, but it wouldn't have been a smooth ride. Right. right. So, and, and I always use this example, right? So you imagine you, you fly with an airline that has, a, that has a failure rate of 2%, right? So it doesn't mean that the other 98% of the flights are good, right? So you might still, <laughs> right. especially, uh, especially while you are in the plane <laughs> over the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific, right? You, you might have this uneasy feeling, right? So yeah. even if I'm not crashing, right? Even the other 98% of the flights are just scary, yeah, and I don't want this. I don't want this in retirement. I want to have this additional safety cushion, so that when uh, so you retire at something like uh, with a with a three percent safe withdrawal rate, and then boom, your portfolio drops, and then even after it dropped by quite a big percentage, you're still only at four percent. Right. Then you can say, well, you know what? If I quote unquote re-retired now with the four percent rule. Um, I would probably still make it because the market has already fallen so yeah. much. Right? For example, yeah, uh, after the market already dropped by 30%, I mean, do you believe that we're going to tag another Great Depression on top of the stock market already dropping no. 20% as of today or who knows where it is when this broadcast? Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, I think we, we've already uh, dropped enough and um, who knows if, if we're going to have I don't think we're going to have a repeat of the global financial crisis. Right? I mean, it's basically, I mean, right now we are fighting inflation. Uh, usually these inflationary style of recessions, you you don't get the the kind of drop in the stock market that that you had in the in the global say in the global financial crisis or the, or right. the Great Depression. So I, I kind of cross my fingers that uh, it doesn't come to that. But I, I mean, just as you said, right? You you want a peaceful and uh, and relaxed retirement, and you you don't want to have to look at your account statements every day and, and then wonder, hey, do I have to go back to work or are we going right. to make it through? So. If we're returning to the simple rules of the FIRE community, you know, the, the simple asset allocation in the accumulation phase is 100% stocks, right? All equities. Um, as I'm getting ready to transition, so I'm about two years away projected from my FI number, um, I'm starting to rethink that. And I've just made some, you know, rebalancing. I've changed my asset allocation to say a 70-30. Tell me why that's a bad move or a good move or, you know, help me kind of come to terms with this because right. I'm not totally, lo I, I'm, I was sort of lamenting the fact that I did that at the end of last mm -hmm. year. And now that where we're at, where we are now, um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Help, help me sort of rationalize this. And if I want to walk it back up closer to 100% equities, like, I know you did through your whole FI journey, right? The day that you retired, then you reallocated. Right. Um, how would I unwind that and walk it back up? Right. So um, this is another friction point with the, say, the traditional asset advisors, right? Yeah. Asset allocation from financial advisors, right? Because, for example, you go and you look at 
uh, I mean, there's something called a, a target, the, the the target date fund industry, yes. right? So Fidelity, Vanguard, uh, T T Rowe Price, uh, I think they they have the the biggest chunk of the uh, of the target date fund market. You look at what a target date fund does, right? So you keep uh, first of all, you don't even start with 100% equities. You right. start with 90, 10, something like that. And I always say, you know, that that 10% bonds for a 25 year old, that's not really it's not really based on any kind of scientific evidence that's that's more of a cya uh, thing for yeah, the sure. uh, for the both the the plan sponsor and the uh uh, and the fund company, the, 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 whether you have 10% or 0% uh, bonds doesn't really make a huge difference. But then, I mean, if somebody complains and sues you, uh, at least you can show that, that that little fig leaf of diversification that you have there. Um, so for, for all practical purposes, if you are young and you're accumulating and you're using the sequence risk this is almost uh, in your favor, right. um, it's okay to have 100% equities. Now, if you look at these target date funds, usually they start shifting out of 90% equity is already something like 20 years before retirement. Yes. Well, well, what does that mean for people in the FIRE community, right? Lots of people don't even save for 20 years. Right. Uh, but even if you say that you compress a 45-year um, glide path and you you just squeeze it, so instead of having uh, the transition from 90-10 to, to 60-40, you do that over 20 years, you do that over seven years. Well, that's still a lot of... Um, yeah, basically opportunity costs, right? Because right. you are shifting out of the highest returning assets and uh, and shift into uh, um, into into the diversifying asset. So I, I always look at well, how were these glide paths uh, constructed, right? And they were usually constructed by using uh, two assumptions. Right? So the first assumption is that you have a very rigid retirement date. So it's a, which could be a good model for some people, right? So, I mean, some people have a retirement date that is kind of, uh, there's not really much wiggle room, right? I mean, there's some people, uh, so I think commercial airline pilots, they have some kind wow. of a mandatory yes, uh, a retirement yeah. date. Uh, there's some people who work for the government and uh, they wait for the, their 20 year vesting period and they say, I'm not going to work one year, one day longer. Uh, and uh, so I've got to work exactly 20 years and then I retire. So there is a, there is that, uh, there's that aspect. So if you, if you have a very inflexible retirement time, then you could say, well, I mean, look, I don't want to retire at the bottom of the bear market, right? And uh, even though you could say, you know, again, if you retire at the bottom of the bear market, right, you don't apply the 4% safe withdrawal rate. I mean, you might apply a 6% withdrawal rate because, well, equities are so cheap. Uh, and um, you you might uh, you might be just uh, starting another bull market, uh, but but yeah, I, I could see that uh, if you have a very rigid retirement timing, then maybe you want to take a little bit of risk off. And um, I, I have a little bit of trouble uh, justifying this. Uh, uh, this this uh, this glide path into that uh, safer asset allocation over a very long horizon. So I think if you if you do this kind of a stepwise um, sliding path down over the last two or three years of your of your working career and you do this gradually, because you will always create this this regret factor, right? If you do this as a one-time shift, I mean, you would have looked. 
probably okay if you had done this when the, when stocks were really were, were really high. Yeah. Uh, but then again, uh, uh, don't forget bonds got hammered too, right? So oh, yeah. uh, interest rates are going up and you're Half losing uh, in your bond portfolio <laughs> and uh, the inflation is high and nominal bonds suddenly don't look so good. Uh, so so keep that in mind. But uh, I mean, you will always create this regret factor when uh, when you do this as a one-time shift. And um, so, so, so keep that in mind. So this is why I probably say, and, and you also want to probably take the emotions out, right? Where, so imagine you shift and then you realize, oh, it was, it was, it was kind of a bad timing. And then you shift back and then it kind of, you get whipsawed. And uh, so take the emotions out. So you, you do what, what you do in every other aspect of, uh, of the fighter. Right, you automate stuff, right? So you take the emotion out, you take the market timing aspect out of it, uh, and um, so if so, I, I've actually written a a blog post. I think it's uh, it's part forty three of my series where I looked at well, what's what's the asset allocation for the last few years of your uh, of your accumulation, yeah. right? So just to just to maximize my quote unquote my my utility at my retirement date. And uh, yeah, I mean, th there were some people who say that that uh, they are not too risk averse. They have a high risk tolerance. I mean, they can even stay at 100% until retirement. Or you take somebody who has some flexibility in the retirement month, and if right at that uh, final point, uh, and you still have 100% equities, and you find yourself in a in a bear market, well, maybe work a little bit longer. Uh, and then also factor in that you obviously uh, have a little bit um, of, of more wiggle room. If you retire in the middle of a bear market, you also have a higher uh, um, uh, a withdrawal rate just because of uh, asset valuations. Um, and uh, and then the, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, I think that some of these target date funds, they're actually calibrated incorrectly because they rely on uh, on, on just pure Monte Carlo simulations. Mm -hmm. So the, the problem with the, with the pure Monte Carlo simulation is that you have trouble um, mimicking what's often happening in real in the real stock market, right? Because right. you have this this Momentum, big draft right? down during the global financial crisis, but then you also had so, for example, if you go from March 9th or whenever was the was the low point, March 9th, 2009, exactly 365 days forward, I think you had something like a 70% return in the S&P 500, and you can generate that with a uh, with just a pure Monte Carlo simulation. So what that means is that potentially anything that is calibrated with the Monte Carlo uh, simulation in terms of the glide path is probably a little bit too cautious because it means yep. that obviously with Monte Carlo you can generate a 50% drop in the stock market, but you will. Ha but after a 50% drop in the stock market, well, what is the expected return in the stock market from then going forward? Well, it's it's just again your 7% or whatever you calibrate. Right. You can't really replicate very easily these sharp reversals and uh, so with the so what I found in that in that blog post where I looked at the different glide paths is that if it's easier to justify um, high equity shares w when you use historical data instead of Monte Carlo so mm -hmm. um, again I mean if you if you have a high enough risk appetite you can stay at hundred percent equities if you have some flexibility in the in the planning and timing you can probably still at a hundred. You can be at a hundred percent, but uh, yeah, probably everybody else wants to wants to shift down a little bit. So if I had to, uh, if I said I, you know, I rebalanced end of last year. So 
things were up looking pretty good. Not a bad time to do it probably, but now things no. are getting hammered and I'm looking at the stock market and I'm like, Ooh, maybe I feel like being all stocks now. How would I unwind that position, that 70, 30 position if I wanted to just do it all at once? Is that what you're well, saying? Um, Is that a bad thing? So uh, I used to work in uh, in asset allocation. So we we and and of, of all things, I mean, we, we, when when I worked for BNY Mellon, we were not stock pickers. So we mm -hmm. did the global asset allocation. So I mean, sometimes just three asset classes, right? Is is yep. a short term, so something like th uh, three months T bills, yep. um, uh, intermediate bonds, so something like a ten year uh, Treasury, and then equities, S and P five hundred index futures. And um, how do you allocate between these three asset classes? I mean, you normally wouldn't do an all-in thing, right? I mean, this is usually you shift your weights, but you don't do it all at once, right? And, and again, you, it, there's going to be some regret uh, factor going on, and um, nobody really knows what's, what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, I, I know what happens tomorrow, right? Tomorrow is the FOMC. The FOMC meeting is already going on today and it will be announced tomorrow. So there's relatively little uncertainty about what they will announce as the interest rate move tomorrow. Right? It is a 50 basis point increase. I can already go on the record and uh, when this broadcast, people, people will probably agree with it. But there's some uncertainty about what is the outlook, right? Yeah. Are they going to just yank up the interest rates up to four, five, six, seven, eight percent in the future? Um, even if they're thinking about that, they're probably not going to say that out loud. But uh, so anybody tries to find these uh, uh, these uh, signals and and reading between the lines. So I I think both for the equity and the stock market is kind of all all everything is on the table. Uh, and uh, so I would probably, uh, if you do any kind of move, I would probably do it gradually over time. So, um, and then if it works in your favor, then you can say, okay, now at least I have a little bit of a cushion. So if I keep going, even if the subsequent uh, moves don't go my way, I mean, at least I had a little bit of a cushion and I'm, I'm not too regretful. Sure. And even if it goes against you, then you can say, well, I'm so glad I didn't do the entire right. uh, bond portfolio shift over to the equity. So now let me do a little bit more because, well, it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's gone against me, but it's not going to be uh, every single day and everything a single month that will go against me. So, so this is why I actually think it's, I, I would do this little bit more gradually sure. but i mean i i can't tell you either way which way it will go yeah. is uh, uh, do i find bonds better or stocks better everything is looks a little bit uh, shaken bad. up right now yeah. and um, there's, I, there's yeah. more bad and less bad <laughs> you know we've talked about the bucket strategy on this show it's it's fairly common i've read a lot of different takes on it you know, whether it's window dressing for really just asset allocation and rebalancing. Kits has written about that. You've written about it. I mean, at the concept level, it makes good sense, right? You, you want to have a certain amount of cash to meet your obligations with, irrespective of what the market's doing. It's nice to have something to sell, even when equity is our way down. So having, a, you know, X number of years, which varies a lot, of fixed income makes sense. What is, how would you distill your feelings about that, the bucket strategy and it as a potential tool in retirement once you're drawing down? Right. So I, I think, I think we, we can all agree that we don't want to be hundred percent equities in retirement, right? So we need 
some risky assets and we need some diversifying assets. And how do I decide what is the percentage? So, I mean, I looked at my simulations and I said, well, you know, probably you want to have your risky asset equity somewhere between 60 to 80 percent and the rest should be some diversifying asset. And then you really have to decide, well, what should that diversifying yes. asset be? Um, oftentimes bonds work really well, right? Because you had this negative stock bond correlation over the, the longest stretch of time. Now it's breaking down a little bit, by the way. So maybe you don't want to have everything in bonds. You have to have a little bit in cash as well. And um, so, uh, yeah, basically what, what seemed to have worked in, um, in, in history, is something like 70% equities, maybe 20 to 25% bonds and five to 10% uh, cash as in, say, money market account or, or uh, T-bills. And, you know, if somebody uses a bucket strategy and they arrive at independently at a similar allocation, I mean, I'm happy, right? So we, yeah. we agree and we have a, kind of a robust asset allocation uh, concept. And uh, some people arrive at it from some kind of maybe a efficient frontier analysis. Some people do some uh, historical simulations for retirees. Uh, and some people have this uh, this bucket idea. Uh, I, I think I, I can totally live with that. Okay. Now, the, the, the problem, of course, is that how do you change the bucket weights over time? Yes, right. right. So, and uh, of course, if you don't change the bucket weights over time, then you're back to my simulation spreadsheet, right? So it's basically you rebalance every month, uh, which in the extreme, you could you could rebalance every month. Maybe you... Right. Maybe it's too much effort. Maybe you rebalance only every three months or six months or one year. I wrote a blog post. It's, it, it doesn't really matter, the, the rebalancing uh, frequency. It's a, uh, it could be a hit or miss. Sometimes it's better. I, I can show you some examples where it just turned out worse because you, you just had the worst time where you rebalanced. You just rebalanced at the, at the bottom of the stock market uh, or, or you, you were lucky that you, that you grabbed the bottom of the stock market. Uh, so it could go either way. Um, but... Um, yeah, again, so if you rebalance your weights, uh, you're back to uh, essentially a static asset allocation. And then really the buckets are window dressing, right? Because you yes. think you take money out of your cash bucket, but of course the bond bucket feeds the cash bucket and, and the stock bucket feeds the bond bucket. And uh, if that's some sort of a psychological aid for you because you're, you don't want to – in fact – uh, this is why financial advisors like it so much, right? Because the clients don't want to take money out of stocks and uh, they're afraid of touching the principal. And then the advisor can tell them, oh, but I'm taking money only out of the cash bucket. Um, and then they they just do the the rest as kind of an automatic rebalancing. So the, 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 the client doesn't even understand that. Even though, you know, I, I would actually prefer instead of um, – kind of deceiving the client, educate the client, and uh, maybe maybe that's better. Um, and um, the other idea is that the, the other thing that works, because we talked about glide path, right? So there's a glide path into retirement, right? So the, while you're still working, uh, you're doing a glide path towards your retirement date. Then once you're in retirement, there is actually some research out there that says that you should now have a relatively low risk portfolio, but you can over time again shift into the higher risk bucket. 
And the reason for that is that is, is again the sequence of return risk because so much depends on say the first five to ten years of your returns, yes. and maybe during that time you take a little bit less risk, and then later on you take more risk. And the the idea with this uh, glide path is, and both uh, Kitzes and Wade Fow uh, have written about that. I've written yes, on my have. blog about. I think it's parts nineteen and twenty. Um, the nice thing about this this glide path is it's a little bit like an insurance policy, mm -hmm. right? So, for example, if if the stock market totally rallies and kills it, then you leave a little bit of money on the table, right? Because then, well, you should have been at a higher equity portion, and um, uh, but that's okay because if the equity market rallies during the first 10 years of your retirement, you don't have to worry about anything anyways. Sorry, yeah. uh, but then if it's the other way around and you have a really poor market, uh, then uh, you stay a little bit out of the uh, out of the mess. And then later on, when the market recovers again, then you're back at a higher equity portion. So, so it, it works in that sense. And what I like about that uh, um, uh, policy is that it again, it's something that, that you can automate, right? So you, you take the emotions out, uh, you have almost a table and you say, you know, I start at 60, 40, and then over time I slowly shift into an 80, 20 or 90, 10 or even 100, zero. Um, and uh, it's there's actually not market timing, right? This is more of a timing of your of your life cycle, right? So it's independent of market conditions. You you don't you don't shift and then part of the shifting is is already generating exactly what what people desire right so for example if the stock market is down um by just so that means relative to the uh, to the targets is some of the other buckets are up and you take money out of those buckets so almost automatically it looks like a bucket strategy so you're only consuming out of the out of the safe assets um, and um, yeah so I, I would I would agree with that so is, that's actually one of the uh, methods that uh, is not going to solve sequence risk but it can take the edge off a little bit what uh, now yeah. Now one Sorry. now so so let, let me let me get let me get one last thought in. So the one thought that um, I'm a little bit troubled about that kind of bucket strategy okay. is when people start talking about okay I use this as a market timing that uh, mm. where um, I'm actually smarter than everybody else because remember if you're trying to time should I is is the equity market more attractive or is a cash balance say in a money market account or three month T bill is that more attractive uh, so you are now getting into the business of timing the equity risk premium right and of course so equities on average they should pay more than a risk free asset uh, but uh, obviously there's a huge dispersion of uh, um, equity returns. And um, yeah, I mean, if you could uh, adequately time the equity premium, I mean, you, you, yeah, you could, you could do much better. But guess what? I mean, that is what everybody else is trying to do. And uh, what is particularly worrisome is, and you, you can talk to anybody who has worked in this space, so including myself, any kind of valuation scheme is not going to be very useful in short-term timing of the equity uh, uh, of the equity premium. So, yes. I mean, people will tell you what ideally what you do is you sell equities when they're expensive and you sell your your cash buffer if equities are cheap. And yes. of course, in a perfect world, I mean, this is just going to work really nicely. <laughs> And uh, but it's it's not going to work that nicely, right? Because I mean, in the end, say, imagine you're starting with something like a two-year worth of expenses cash buffer, right? And then you start 
drawing down your cash buffer so you don't have to touch your equity. So, so what happens if after two years, equities are still down? In fact, they keep going down. Right. What do you do now? Do you do do you replenish the entire two years with just one big chunk, right, which could be tens of thousands, actually over $100,000 all at once? Or you, do you do this stepwise? Do you already replenish slowly over time? Uh, and um, again, so because we're talking about relatively small amounts, so it's not like you have some sort of a timing scheme where you take your entire multi-million dollar portfolio and shift it back and let right. it slosh between <laughs> stocks and cash. Um, and uh, so we're talking about some, some relatively small amounts of, uh, of the portfolio. And um, so first of all, you have to come up with some sort of a timing scheme, right? Yeah. And even if you find a timing scheme where, say, you know, I can squeeze out an extra one percentage point of return out of my uh, out of my cash versus versus stock uh, market timing scheme. Which, by the way, you can't. Uh, you, it, it's not if you're using a, any kind of valuation uh, scheme. Um, it's momentum as uh, so a kind of a trend following scheme that might also that might also be hard. So, but imagine you. You, you can add an alpha, right? We call this alpha. So mm -hmm. alpha is this, this excess return that somebody can generate if you follow some sort of a, uh, some sort of a timing strategy, either stock picking or market timing. And you generate this 1% extra return, but we're, we're talking about, say, a few months worth of expenses, right? There's a tiny fraction of your portfolio. So, so even if you have uh, something like on average, you start with this two-year worth of expenses, you draw it down to zero, then you replenish it, then you draw it down. So on average, you have one year worth of expenses uh, in your cash bucket, which is an average of, th th it would be an average of 4%. So it, it jumps back and forth between 8% and 0%. So you have 4% of your portfolio, and you can get a 1% extra return on 4% of your portfolio. So we're talking about a four basis point <laughs> extra return. <clears throat> So if somebody has, say, a safe withdrawal rate of 3.5% and somebody says, well, I can squeeze out an additional 0.04% of extra return, you, you can't just increase your safe withdrawal rate from 35 to 4.5%, right? Because the, the extra 1% return is only on that small portion of your portfolio. So, you, yeah, I mean, you increase your withdrawal rate by by 0 0.04 basis points. It's, it's not that much. So th this is why I, uh, I'm a little bit cautious about um, the people who want to say, well, I can market time myself mm -hmm. uh, through a bear market. It's, it's going to be harder than, than you thought. And if it is a very strict and rigid rules-based program, I mean, uh, show it to me how it worked in simulations uh, it's probably harder than you think because equity valuations are okay for forecasting something like 10 or 15 years it's very hard to forecast equity uh, equity premium uh, any kind of a timing scheme with valuation um and um uh, so it's it's uh, and and if it is something completely discretionary and emotional, then then I'm kind of doubtful too because then well, uh, it, it, it's hard to verify and yes. uh, it's, it's hard to to get this consistent. So you would apply just a a, a rule set that says this is what I do. 
Yeah, it could be a rule. And then again, the rule has to be based on some kind of principles, right? So, and, and again, if, if you read some of the some of the posts from Kitsis or, or from me, I mean, there's, there's, this is not some some random finding, right? There, there's, right. Some, there's some mathematics behind the fact that over your life cycle, you should have different, uh, different risk targets, right? Yeah. So you can have more risk when you're really young, then you draw it down uh, to your retirement date, and then you can take more risk again as you uh, sure. as you age in retirement. So there's there's some math behind it. So that's not that's not market timing. That is uh, that is the timing of uh, of, of your your personal your life, uh, life cycle. Sense. So I I can hear the comments coming in, and we get comments like this all the time. I'm sure you get them on your <laughs> blog too, like dividend paying stocks. Oh yeah. <laughs> Right. That's the solution yeah, to this. Right. Because yeah. they just throw off cash. They right. perpetually. Right. Yeah. So right. it, let's let's put this to bed because I'm so I'm honestly so tired of hearing about it. Yeah. You know, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, there are two things, again, that I think the fire community gets right. Right. And then um, it's, it's so keep things simple. Right. <laughs> and um, stock picking doesn't work no. and market timing doesn't work. And um, uh, the funny thing is, I write this whole 53-part series, and then people just leave a comment. Oh, it's, it's, you don't have to write your series. I mean, it's, it's very easy. You just do stock picking or market time. <laughs> right. Bingo. <laughs> it's, uh, Done. it's almost like a... It's almost like you're in a comedy show or something. Right? <laughs> so it's almost like, uh, is there a laugh track uh, coming in the background? <clears throat> yeah. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think... Um, if we agree that uh, stock picking is something also quite difficult, um, and uh, so we are now saying that all of these stock pickers, they just uh, they just overlook the one really obvious thing, right? So <laughs> they, should, they should just go all into dividend stocks, and then you then you can beat the market. And of course, the, it's it's not true, right? So, right. Uh, and um, then the, the people try to tweak this a little bit, right? They say, well, we don't just look um, at high dividend payers because you could be in this value trap, right? So this is, is this trap where uh, the stock got completely clobbered, right? So the price went down, the uh -huh. dividend is still relatively high, and the dividend yield looks really high, but well, it's just a question of time until uh, dividend gets cut. Okay. So then people come up with these uh, with these additional screens, right? So the screen would be, well, it's, you have to be not just a dividend payer, it has to be a dividend payer that has been consistently paying yes. dividends, right? Yes. Um, and um, <laughs> so it turns out, right, um, until 2008, what were some of the most consistent dividend payers? Right? It's financial institutions, right? the Bank of America, um, Citibank, they, they were all, I think Bank of America for sure was was one of the 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 companies that made it into this into this uh, dividend aristocrat screen right so because they had been paying consistent dividends they're always raising the dividends well until they stop paying dividends or they cut their dividends drastically so and then on top of that right so so not only is your dividend cut right so but now you can say well now i sell well are you, do you sell the stock now after they cut the dividend right so it's kind of too late now because the the price got clobbered do you sit it out um so uh, yeah, so my my general um, uh, theory is that I th I don't think that this this dividend uh, strategy and and dividend pumping really works. Now I have to be also careful, right? Because I don't want to say that dividend stocks are, are consistently underperforming, right? So I'm I'm just saying that um, it's it's a kind of a hit or miss, 
right? So there, there have been recessions in bear markets where dividend stocks performed a little bit better. Uh, it turns out that in 2008, it was actually, it was actually a uh, roughly a wash, right? So some of the financial stocks performed really poorly, but some of the more brick and mortar uh, stocks, they performed a little bit better uh, during the 2008 recession. So if you look at the uh, at the returns of something like a U.S. dividend stocks versus U.S. global, U.S. just the broad market S&P 500, uh, they weren't so different. And I, I I found that some of the dividend payers they were a little bit underperforming the S&P 500, but. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really rub that in too badly. And then on top of that, the, the fact that uh, that dividend payers in, in some recessions, they underperform. I'm not saying that they underperformed because they paid dividends. Sure, yeah. uh, I'm saying that there were there were some other factors. There were some industries uh, that uh, are traditionally uh, more likely or less likely to pay dividends. So, for example, uh, during the pandemic uh, uh, bear market, it was mostly growth stocks that did relatively well. So the non-dividend payers, the, the IT stocks uh, that uh, that did relatively well and dividend payers got hammered. Turns out that uh, in the current bear market, it's, it's actually the other way around. So it's now it's more of the uh, the high-flying IT stocks that, uh, that got hammered. And then um, some of the old uh, brick-and-mortar stocks are now catching up again. So again, I'm not saying that uh, underperformance or outperformance is because of dividends. It's because of other factors, and then they're, they're just sometimes dividend stocks uh, are doing well, and sometimes they don't do well. Is a hit or miss. So uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's some additional risk from uh, from from doing that dividend route, and I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm very skeptical. And I've I've written I think it's parts 29, 30, and 31 on my blog. So that that was so I wrote this this blog post. I thought I could kind of dispel this uh, this dividend myth in one blog post but i mean these these dividend people they are they are persistent Relentless. they're very zealous <laughs> i would say they're true believers awesome you know we've been talking about simplicity with the fire movement here the investing strategy you know is, there's a time where you're just grinding it out the transition point into early retirement, once you hit your five number, and then those first couple of years in early retirement. Since you've navigated both sides of FI here, what would you be doing in those couple of years before and the couple of years after leading up to and through that transition? Um, how do you capture both sides of that? What would you be doing now? And especially given the current market conditions, inflation, I know you're not that worried right. about inflation, right. but speak to this kind of current transition zone because we have a lot of viewers who are kind of yes. in this space right now. Actually, I, I got a little bit more worried about inflation. So I'm, I'm writing a blog post on that. So that's that's coming up. Uh, but um, no, I mean, so imagine if I if uh, if I had just shifted my time by uh, whatever, four, five, six years, and I would now be two years before retirement, right? And uh, I mean, funny thing is, I, I did have a little bit of this moment uh, in 2018, right? So in 2018, um, we had this we had this very long low period and very low volatility, and then f suddenly in February uh, 2018, right around the time when I was supposed to 
uh, announced my retirement, the equity market volatility started again. And then 2018, for example, was uh, was one of the uh, not so good years in the stock market, right? There was was the last time we had the calendar year uh, negative return in the S and P 500, I believe. Mm. So um, uh, yeah, so if if I if I were two years before retirement, um, I would. Uh, I would probably just operate just just as before, you know, work hard, uh, put uh, put as much as you can in your uh, in your nest egg, and uh, and and kind of grind it out, uh, as you said. That uh, and I mean, in some way, uh, not thinking too much about it is, is probably better, right? So because right. if you if you just scrutinize it and you worry about it too much, um, it's a uh, it's it's not very helpful and um, but i have to remain flexible right i mean that to right, me seems right. like a big like yeah. i can't put a yeah. 2024 date on it even though and i want to i i think i think you're probably still okay for the 2024 date right because okay. again it, it depends on how obviously it depends on how the next two years work out right but but if we have a a relatively average and benign bear market and um by that time Probably the Federal Reserve will start lowering rates again already, and uh, not quite sure if the S and P is going to be back at 4,800 points. But uh, um, even if it is a little bit below that, right? I mean, the the good thing is that uh, valuations look a lot better now. So, yeah, right. and I I recently looked at what. So, what would be your safe withdrawal rate uh, conditional on the S&P 500 already being 20% below the peak, right? And that, that that's really the kind of exercise yeah. we should should look at, right? I mean, we don't have to compare today anymore to, say, September 1929 or, uh, or December 1972 or something like that, or uh, what was it, As, um, August 2000. Uh, with the with the Cape ratio of about forty, so we uh, so we are already a lot better positioned. And um, if uh, if the wheels don't completely come off over the next few years, I th- I think you'll still be fine. Um, I I'm a little bit worried, and and this is this is a little bit my concern, right? So we we have eight percent inflation, and the the Federal Reserve is basically meddling with some rate hikes, going from basically zero percent to a little bit over one percent so far, and then uh, I think one point three eight percent tomorrow, right? So it's a one point two five to one point five percent range. So the, take take the midpoint is one point three eight percent. Uh, strictly speaking, the the Fed should already be at something like seven, eight, nine percent uh, Fed funds rate, right? If they were if they were actually serious about uh-huh. fighting inflation, right. right? We would have because right now we have a negative Fed funds rate right. if, if you inflation adjusted, right? <laughs> and uh, so that that's a little bit a um, a worry that I have uh, right now that uh, that people don't actually realize how how worse things could become uh, in the sense that um, uh, if the Fed has to basically do a repeat of, say, 1982 and get inflation out of the system, they're going to break the cycle, engineer a recession, uh, and then uh, get this get this inflation spiral uh, out uh, through through a big recession and, and rate hikes. Um, 
I, I still cross my fingers that there's this just going to be a slowdown a little bit, right? There might be a little bit of hangover anyways from the pandemic. People will probably stop consuming as, as much as they have been. Uh, that will take some pricing pressures off. And uh, th that would obviously be the, the ideal scenario. And then um, by the time next year, um, the Fed is probably going to be at something like 3.5%. And then they start lowering rates already. And we have uh, inflation rates that are coming down. Th that's normally pretty good for investors. So uh -huh. I, I always caution people that um, even, if you, even if you know the inflation rate over your entire next 30 years of retirement, it, it doesn't really have any kind of informative power on what the safe withdrawal rate would have been over that 30 years. Uh, equity valuations help you a little bit, but but not so much the inflation rate. And, and it's normally, it's, it's not so much the inflation rate itself. It's more of the, the direction of the inflation rate that could be good or not so good for asset readers. So I kind of cross my fingers that in, in two years when you retire – will be we might not be completely back to normal but just being on the path back to normal you will uh, you will probably be in a, in a good shape and you hopefully you just worry about nothing right now so thanks thank god you said <laughs> that Karsten. can't you feel better i mean you're still i mean you're still contributing at very high rates that's how i feel I, I'm just you gonna, are buying I, yeah, the bottom no. or you're buying low right i appreciate that and i i'm just going to put that on loop in my in my earpiece yes <laughs> You should dial the anxiety back. So it's a lullaby. <laughs> so the person who just entered retirement now, transitioning there, Karsten is, um, I mean, they're they're on the opposite side of this, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, so I mean, if you if you just retire today, I mean, you're probably in a pretty good shape, right? Because equities are already better valued. Uh, equities are um, already twenty percent down from the peak. And uh, so uh, I, I'm a little bit more worried about the people that retired in January, right? And the people that retired in January yeah. and they pushed it a little bit on their uh, on their uh, safe withdrawal rate. So instead of 4%, they went to 5% and basically now uh, have a much higher effective safe uh, uh, a much higher effective withdrawal rate right. so uh, I mean, they would probably be a lot more uh, worried they might have to cut their expenses and uh, maybe pick up some uh, pick up a job here and there um, but uh, yeah I mean for for most people in the fire community I think I think we should be fine it would be nice to hear the kind of fire life that you have for yourself now Carson. Right. if you don't mind sharing like kind of what's going on what like what does summer travel look like are you doing some yeah. revenge spending yeah. like i want to hear hear the fun stuff yeah so i mean uh it, it doesn't really feel like retirement in fact right now you can probably hear my daughter uh she has her piano lesson in the background <laughs> that's great i love it <laughs> so, uh so life is just uh pretty normal here so we live in the suburbs um we after that long and aggressive travel schedule in 2018 and 2019 so we took it a little bit easy in 2020 last year we i think we traveled for a month uh but only domestically so went to colorado and south dakota and wyoming uh, visited family in georgia uh this year we're gonna do two trips so we'll be in europe for a month uh fly to 
Netherlands, uh, Germany, Belgium, uh, Luxembourg, and then take a cruise to Norway out of Amsterdam. So nice. that's always uh, that's always a lot of fun. We we already uh, did a cruise in May to Alaska, and uh, so I mean obviously right now uh, the 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 travel schedule is a lot more limited because our daughter right. goes to school, but um, yeah so. I think the the two months of of travel time that we that we can have and probably will have this year, uh, that's that's kind of enough. Uh, and I, I can tell you after the two months, I'll probably be happy to be home again. <laughs> yes. So because after we come back from Europe, I think we have three days here at home, and then we fly to Alaska again uh, and uh, do some do a road trip there. Um, so Anchorage and Fairbanks and Denali, and then take the cruise ship back to uh, Vancouver, BC. So uh, yeah, so we, we stay we stay busy, right? We have a we have a daughter, so we get up every morning uh, at six thirty uh, and get our daughter ready. I take my daughter to the school bus, and uh, it uh, it's not your typical retirement uh, because of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so we stay busy. Uh, I'm blogging. Um, I uh, uh, I'm going to pick up a, a new teaching gig for next year uh, at UC Berkeley Extension, and uh, they hired so, you back. <laughs> uh, trying to trying to stay busy, and uh, so it's uh, it's. But then again, I mean, we also I don't. I don't have a stressful job. I don't have to don't have to go to the office every day. I don't have to do performance reports anymore. <laughs> and um, I, I I always say, you know, it's a uh, it's stressful to be in retirement and basically okay. I mean, this Nasdaq that's that's all we ever have, right? So we we might do a little bit extra here or extra there, uh, but it's uh, nothing is as stressful as taking care of other people's money. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I had a stressful job, and I'm I'm happy I don't have to do that anymore. And we uh, uh, so sort of have have a pretty sweet life here in uh, in Washington State. That's amazing. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that and all of your time with us and information and critiques of our plans. And um, yeah, I'm just I'm so thankful for you. So thank you, Karsten. You bet. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, just uh, echo Eric's thanks. Really appreciate it. I think there's uh, just tremendous value here that we're looking forward to sharing with the community. And certainly uh, we'll link to all the relevant uh, pieces of your extensive series, uh, not just the in safe withdrawal rate, but anything else that makes sense. And certainly I, I would highly recommend people check out the toolkit. It's uh, as you've heard, it's uh, very informative. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Phi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com.